Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we come to difficult passages like this, we pray that you would guide us, help us to understand, help us to receive your truth, help us to hear from you, guide what is said, guide what is heard. And Lord, speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. When Mark Twain was visiting London, away from North America where he lived, his disappearance led some people to believe that he had died. And so much so that one newspaper actually put his obituary, uh, published that he was dead. And when he heard, he said, the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. In a similar way, the church, down through the centuries, has been attacked, has been oppressed. And some people have rejoiced that it seems the church is dead, the church is dying. But rumors of the church's death have been greatly exaggerated as well. Glenn Stanton is an author who, two years ago, he wrote a book titled The Myth of the Dying Church. In his book, he argues that the the idea that the church is dying out is a myth. People often point out that young people are leaving the church in their droves. The number of people with no religious commitment in Western countries is skyrocketing. Church buildings are closing down. They're being converted into restaurants or accommodation or just being knocked down for other buildings to be built in their place. Eight years ago, the independent newspaper in Britain had a story that predicted in in Britain, for all intents and purposes, the church will be dead in 40 years. In many parts of the world, especially in the Western world, there has been a decline of, of those who have, in a sense, culturally gone to church. There have been a decline of those who, who went along reluctantly, nominally, there's also been a decline in those who have supported church. But the stories often quoted from North America that predicts the same decline with churches losing people at an alarming rate. But yet, Jesus has said that as well as the church being built on the profession of faith, such as the profession of faith that was given through the insight that Peter had a revelation from God that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is built upon profession of faith that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who professes faith in Christ. We're told that the church will nevertheless overcome. The enemy will not prevail. The devil will not prevail. Jesus says to Peter, And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, many argue that's the rock of his profession of faith, not Peter himself. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That last phrase that I'm going to focus on, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's worth noting that the gates of hell is not the entrance into hell 
that we might think of as people dying or people being judged and they, they go down into eternal suffering. That's not the imagery here. In ancient cities, there were no town halls, no parliaments. The ancient leaders, the elders of a city, of a large town, would, would sit at the city gates and discuss the things of the, that were concerning them. And the decisions that would be made at the city gates where the elders would meet would be the decisions of the town council, in effect. The city gates were decisions, was where decisions were made, where policies were crafted, where the schemes of people were decided. And so the gates of hell is a figurative description for the plans of the devil. It's figurative language for his plans and his schemes against God's people, against Christ himself. Jesus is building his church and the plans of the devil will not prevail against it, is what Jesus is saying. But yet, is the church declining as some people are predicting? Is it as bad a situation as some are, are noting? Yes, churches are closing in some places, but the church is growing in other places as well. Dr. Jim Dennison notes that the secularization thesis is embraced by secular people and advanced by secular media because it advances their secular worldview and agenda, which has no place for religion. The idea that the church is dying is a secular thesis, a secular message that suits secular people. However, Glenn Stanton, author of The The Myth of the Dying Church, says that after outlining an awful lot in his book, he concludes, certainly with respect to the United States, where, where he was focusing, church attendance is at an all-time high, both in raw numbers and as a percentage of the population. The percentage of young adults regularly attending evangelical and non-denominational churches has roughly doubled between 1972 and today. The nuns, not not the nuns who are dressed in black, but those who classify themselves as what religion? None. Are not new unbelievers, but people who are never really committed to the faith and are now free to sort of tell people in surveys that they don't align themselves with the religion that their parents might have. But they're just saying, no, I'm no religion now. And the, large, and the number of Christians in the world today is larger than it has ever been in the history of the world. Those are some striking conclusions that go just totally against the, the secular message that the church is dying. A study by other scholars has found that rather than religion fading into irrelevance, as the secularization thesis would suggest, intense religion, strong affiliation, very frequent practice... Literalism and evangelicalism is persistent. And in fact, only moderate religion is on the decline, certainly in the United States. The same could be said for here too. It is liberal churches, it is nominalism that is dying. But fervent churches, Bible-based churches, are not dying. They are alive. 
in the United States, the number of weekly attenders from all denominations has fallen from 44% in the mid-50s to 35% today. However, it's noted that nearly all of this decline is found in the liberal churches. Liberal Protestant churches are in decline, Catholic churches are in decline, but evangelical Bible-based churches are growing. Sociologist Rodney Stark has calculated that the percentage of Americans who attend church, not always weekly, but regularly, has ridden steadily from, in 1776, what's that, over 200 years ago, 200 and nearly 50 years ago now, was only 17% then, but it's 69% today in the United States. And that, that figure can be replicated in other places as well. Gordon Conwell's Center for the Study of Global Christianity has tracked growth from 1970 to 2017, and it shows a result of a 408% increase in Africa a 324% increase in Asia, a 124% increase in Latin America, 71% growth in Oceania, the Pacific area, and 37% growth in the United States. While some denominations are in decline, much more than others, Christ is still building his church. Others are growing, especially churches that are committed to evangelism and have the solid rock of God's word and have the, the driving force of the Holy Spirit. Although the Western world is shifting from a sort of Christian-dominated mindset towards a secular mindset in terms of power and in terms of what's politically correct, we shouldn't necessarily, we shouldn't necessarily conclude that the church is dying correspondingly while Christians used to have positions of power in government even though a Christian mindset is not the dominant mindset anymore that doesn't mean that the church is going away outreach is continuing people are coming to know the Lord the church is growing in some places, especially in universities, the number of students who are trusting in the Lord has been increasing, not declining. In the United States, in 2017, they had the highest number of new Christians, new people come to faith in the Lord through the Ministry of InterVarsity, UCCF or International Fellowship of Evangelical Students is the equivalent in other countries. Student ministry is growing. While we may see some churches struggling at the moment and the current pandemic is causing us problems, we cannot meet together. And some people who were maybe on the periphery, who were going to drop off eventually, maybe this is going to accelerate that might be harder to get some people back to church. But those who are committed will be back. But overall, the prediction about the decline of the church, Glenn Stanton's book title sums it all up, describing it as the myth of the dying church. 
in China, the church was expected to die out when the missionaries were expelled when communism took over in 1949. But instead, the church has grown. So much so that according to the Financial Times, one expert has predicted that by 2030, in what? Just less than 10 years, China will almost certainly have more Christians than any other country. And the Communist Party is very alarmed. The number of Bible-believing Christians in China has grown from about 1 million back in 1949 to 58 million today. Some people even calculated at 100 million. The church dying is a myth that might decline in one denomination or in one country, but the church is growing. The church is strong. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The New Testament church, however, as well as believers in the Old Testament and throughout time has always faced opposition, even to the point of persecution. And in Revelation chapter 11, although the description in verses 1 to 14 is very dramatic, it essentially tells the same story that the church will prevail, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even if the church is persecuted to the point of death, it does not succeed in killing off the church. As the early church father Tertullian has said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution is no match for the living, breathing church of God, for the Holy Spirit indwelt church of God. Persecution and martyrdom has instead resulted in a growing church. That's certainly the case in China and elsewhere. When we come in particular in detail to look at Revelation chapter 11, we can see that we're given lots of figurative language. John is given a measuring rod uh, he's told to measure the temple of God. We see two olive trees and lampstands, which are two prophets, as they're described later on in the passage, who are killed, but they rise again from the dead. What is this first half of Revelation chapter 11 all about? It's John telling us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. John is being given a message that the church will survive and will not be killed off. It might look as though it's down and out, but it's not. It will persevere. It's survived through every generation up to the point where John was writing and since. When we come to interpret Revelation chapter 11, Many people, in fact, probably the dominant view is a futurist approach that what is written here is going to happen in the future. And yet there's many problems with the futurist approach to Revelation in general. And we've looked at that before. But one of the things that was is significant is that if, if these things are about the future, then really it's irrelevant to us now. It has no bearing on our actual living today. It's just a, a thing that will happen in the future. Instead, 
instead of seeing revelation as happening, telling us what will happen in the future, the, the understanding that we have is that we have different perspectives of church history, of the history of the people of God. The futurist approach takes this chapter literally and says that there is going to be a new temple built in Jerusalem. And people today are building the, the, the implements. They've got a lot of the furniture ready for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But anyone who knows the basics of their theology, anybody who's read the letter to the Hebrews knows that sacrifice, altars, temple, that's a thing of the past. Sacrifices and altars were a way of conveying to people before Christ came that there was a need for a sacrifice. Blood needed to be shed, a death needed to be made, atonement needed to be made. God's wrath needed to be poured out on someone else so that we could be saved. Now that the cross has occurred, now that we can look back and see clearly how our salvation has been worked out, temple sacrifices and altars are redundant it goes completely against the whole message of Hebrews to have the, any idea of having another temple another altar, another sacrifice another sacrificial system so theologically it doesn't work either instead we approach Revelation generally and here in chapter 11 in particular from the perspective that's describing the history of God's people this is another perspective <clears throat> on church history. For example, the church is described as the temple of God several times in the New Testament, such as where Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy and you're that temple. That could be even said to be a summary of the first half of Revelation chapter 11. But let's look at the symbolism. Let's look at how Revelation chapter 11 is to be taken figuratively. In fact, we're even told at one point that some of the things are to be taken figuratively. John takes a measuring rod, a measuring stick, and that is best understood against the, the measuring of the temple that was prophesied in Ezekiel verse chapters 40 to 48. An angel measures the city, its gates and its walls, and that symbolizes the protection of those who live within the city. John measuring the temple of God symbolizes the protection that God has, his security, his eternal security for his people. And yet, the fact that he was told not to measure the outer courtyard symbolizes that the outer courtyard was not protected. The outer courtyard in the temple in Jerusalem was where the Gentiles, the other nations, could gather. That's where the, the temple had its interface with the rest of the world. And so in Revelation chapter 11 we see that the temple itself, the people of God themselves are protected. But where we relate to the world, we're not necessarily as protected. 
The church can be persecuted by the world, even though it has eternal security. People are often attacked, persecuted, oppressed in non-physical ways as well as in physical ways. People oppress God's people. They discriminate against them. They oppose them. That's a reality that we have. That's like the outer court experience. But the inner court experience is one of protection in the Lord. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can take away our eternal security in the Lord. The reference to 42 months or three and a half years or how many is it? 1260 days. It's all the same thing. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. That equates to the time of tribulation prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, 12 and of times, times and half a time, a year, two years, and half a year, three and a half years, 42 months is also significant in that 42 is a very significant number as well. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 42 years, two years before they were told to go into Canaan and 40 years wandering after they were rebellious and didn't go in. 42 months or three and a half years is also the same length of time of Elijah's ministry of judgment, we're told in Luke 4.25. In Revelation 12, the woman symbolizes the people of God and is protected in a wilderness from attack from the same, for the same length of time, three and a half years. And so the symbol of, symbolism of wilderness and protection is very evident here. The two olive trees and lampstands that we read of here are later described in the passage as being two prophets. They might be symbolizing the two faithful churches at the start of Revelation, um, where there were two of the churches were not criticized in any way. Two were faithful without having compromised with the world. Or they could refer to Moses and Elijah Olive oil sometimes symbolized faithful giving, having oil in your lamp. And the lampstand symbolizes the light of God's word. These two prophets can therefore be seen to symbolize the church and its witness in the world. The church's faithful witness in the world. And they have the power of God working through them. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. That immediately brings our minds back to the ministry of Elijah who called a drought on the land. There was no rain for some years until he prayed and it rained again. As well as the ministry of Moses who called down the plagues on Egypt when Pharaoh would not let the people go. He was oppressing God's people and he received the plagues because he was rebellious against God. He would not let the people go. 
And yet the church, while it is powerful on earth, is still vulnerable. In verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, they are vulnerable and killed. That symbolizes not that the church will die out at one point, but that the church is going through an ongoing process of witnessing and being oppressed and killed and witnessing and oppressed and killed. It's all happening at the same time. Some are witnessing, some are powerfully working while others are being oppressed and killed. This is a continual process that the church is experiencing. We're even told in in verse 8 that Sodom and Egypt are to be interpreted figuratively, which is in line with how we interpret the rest of this passage, to describe the world, the place of opposition to God and his people. Sodom symbolizes sin. Egypt symbolizes opposition and oppression and worldliness so often in the Bible. And yet their bodies were killed. Actually, in the Greek, it's their body. It's a singular word. Would lie for three and a half days. The nations would hold their breath. The people, the tribes and the languages would hold their breath, seeing, is salvation going to come? The enemies at the same time would gloat, thinking the, the church is dead. The devil thought that he had defeated Jesus when he died on the cross. He must have been gloating over the death of Jesus. But he rose again from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And the church is not dead. The church rises, even though people die, even though people are martyred, they will rise again when the Lord comes again. And they will be with him for eternity. Our death is only temporary. And in the light of the fullness of eternity, it will be seen to be only very temporary in comparison. God breathed life into that dead body and it rose up again from the dead. And the word for spirit in both the Old and the New Testament is is breath or wind. By the spirit, we are raised to life when we place our faith in Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, we will be raised in our bodies to be with Christ forever. And here we have a picture as well that is so close to the the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched Jesus was ascended into heaven and when Christ comes again the dead will rise again from the graves all who are alive will ascend just to be with him and terror will strike all who are on the wrong side of God on that day While the gates of hell, while the plans of the devil had thought that they killed off the Savior on the cross and that they're killing off the church, that is not what is happening. The church is surviving. 
or that we might appear at times to be dead and defeated on the day when the Lord comes again there will be the final nail in the coffin of the devil and all who are on his side but yet in the meantime forgiveness and mercy and salvation are offered to everyone who will switch sides who will side with the Lord who will accept the forgiveness for sins who will accept the gift of eternal life who will accept an eternal future where there is no suffering certainly no punishment but no more suffering any longer and when the Lord comes again he will reign forever the government will be on his shoulders he will be in charge the nations and the leaders of nations those who are in power if they might have been against God's people when Christ comes again that will be a thing of the past Christ will rule with justice and power and we will rule with him he gives us that privilege too it's no wonder that the 24 elders then sang a song of praise the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him and they said we give thanks to you Lord God the almighty the one who is and who always was for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign the nations were filled with wrath but now the time of your wrath has come it's time to judge the dead and reward your servants the prophets as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest it's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth If we're looking for justice, we will have it one day. But God resists, God holds back from bringing in justice because he wants people to turn to him. He wants, he doesn't delight in judgment and the death of the wicked. He delights in mercy and in his love he calls out in the gospel for, for his enemies to turn to him and become his friends. When the Lord comes again, we will be with God forever. We will be with him and he will be our God. And this is symbolized in the last verse in Revelation chapter 11. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. The lightning and the thunder and the roaring of the sound symbolizes the power of God. But the ark of his covenant symbolizes his presence. The ark of the covenant in the Old Testament temple was in the Holy of Holies, the place where not even the average priest could go, but only the high priest once a year into the most Holy of Holies now that symbolized the very close presence of God. And so when Christ comes again, we will be in his presence in an unrestrained way. The fulfillment of all God's promises will be experienced then. The church will survive and the church will thrive 
and then it will be glorified and we will be with God forever. Here in Revelation chapter 11, John is giving a symbolic language based on the Old Testament. The symbolism is based on the Old Testament as so often in Revelation. That even though God's people might be attacked at times, even though we might be persecuted or opposed or oppressed, even martyred, as is occurring in in some parts of the world in a striking way. Despite that, the church is surviving and the church will rise again. The church will be with God. Nothing can take that away. Our outward suffering doesn't take away the fact that God will keep us. He will persevere with us. He will make sure we persevere. We struggle at times, but we're eternally secure. We're attacked on the one hand, but on the other hand, we are eternally safe, protected by God's powerful hand and protected by his plan of salvation, plan of redemption. We are vulnerable, but we are secure. Paul describes this in a very poignant way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And after some personal comments, he continues, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In Revelation chapter 11, John encourages us to look at the things which are unseen, the things which are eternal. Not, he encourages his readers, his hearers, not to look at the persecution, the opposition from the Romans against the church. He encourages, not to, encourages us not to, to look at the opposition we might face, the things that are seen, but to see the unseen, look at the unseen, the protection of God down through the centuries, the promises of God that we will persevere to the end. At a personal level, we might find that we are either individually or as a church at times, you know, we might be struggling. We might find that we're under more opposition. We might find that our our health is failing. We might find it harder going sometimes. We might be more opposed by some people than we were in the past. But inwardly, in our Holy Spirit nature, we are being renewed day by day. And when we, we weigh up the affliction that we have now, compared to the weight of glory to come. If you put them on the weighing scales, 
on the weight of glory far outweighs the problems that we have now. The things we struggle with now are transient, only for a very short time in the light of eternity. And we have a weight of glory that cannot be destroyed. The plans of the devil might be against us, against God's people, against God himself, but he will not prevail. We will prevail. We will overcome. It's a message of revelation. It's a message of chapter 11. So let's press on. If you're discouraged, be encouraged in the Lord. We will be with him. We will persevere. He will strengthen us now. He will glorify us then. And count it all joy. Not that our suffering is joyful, but what we have to come is, gives us so many reasons to be rejoicing. If you haven't trusted in Jesus yet and you want to have that eternal reward, if you want to have the presence of God, if you want to have his protection, if you want to have that inner life, if you want to have that forgiveness of sins, then simply call on the name of the Lord. Trust in Jesus. He has died on the cross. He has shed his blood. He has atoned for our sin so that we can be forgiven. We don't come to God in our own righteousness. We don't have to worry about not being good enough. That's the old way of coming to God, having to be good enough. The new way through faith in Jesus is to say that Jesus is good enough and we receive his righteousness and we are accepted on the basis of who he is and what he has done. And we simply admit, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And ask God to forgive us our sins. And we are there and then immediately justified, right with God, forgiven. We are there and then changed from being on the wrong side of God to being God, part of God's people. There and then we have eternity secured forever for us. Not by our own strength or our own righteousness, but because of the strength of God and the righteousness of Christ. If you've already trusted in Jesus, then praise God that he is building his church. And his church will not be defeated. We will not be defeated individually. If you haven't trusted in him, trust in him now for the forgiveness of sins. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God on that day when he comes again. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God when you die. Trust in him now while you still have the opportunity while you're hearing this message that you might know Christ and know in your heart the forgiveness the freedom, the release and the joy that comes through faith in him let's pray Lord we thank you that you're a merciful God we thank you that you're a gracious God and we thank you that you're a powerful God. Lord, we thank you that even though the enemy is given some room on his leash for a while, Lord, we thank you that ultimately he is defeated. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately the church will prevail. 
We thank you that this is all because of your power and your grace and your mercy towards us. Lord, help us to build a church, to share the gospel, to live as your people as we ought to. Help us to live in the light of your promises. Help us to live, Lord, not in the light of the messages that people give to us. The church is dying. That is a myth. You're protecting your church. You're growing your church. And we thank you, Lord, that we will be with you for eternity because of your love and grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.